We're going to get back into the Gospel of Luke next Sunday. Um, and actually, our friend uh, and president of Reformed Theological Seminary, Scott Red, is going to be here to get us back into Luke next Sunday. So come back, uh, not just for breakfast, but to get back into Luke with Scott. But I want to take a moment today to, in a way, extend our We Believe series uh, a bit. And I'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, but this is somewhat rare in that if you were to, if you're a guest here and you were to come to Covenant Life most Sundays, 90 plus percent of the time we're working through one text of Scripture as we go through particular books of the Bible. And we do that very intentionally and we'll continue to do that. Uh, but very occasionally we stop and look at a particular theme in Scripture, look at something more topically, and that's what I'm going to do today. Um, that requires more work of you. You've got to check me and make sure I'm handling all the dozens of scriptures I'm going to reference faithfully, um, but we're going to do that today. And the theme we're going to consider is the theme of the gospel itself. And so I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses to set up that theme. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Father, we thank you for this simple message. Yeah, this message that is so profound in its claim and its impact. That is, it's a great stumbling block to many. And Lord, at the same time, it has utterly transformed the world. And it has completely transformed our lives. So Father, on this first Sunday of this new year, as we take up this message together, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the truth of it more clearly, and God, that it would take up its rightful place in our hearts, in our thinking, the way we live our lives, and the way we function together as a church. So shape us by it even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any association of people uh, who gather together do so around a particular uh, center point, right? So uh, you may live in a community where there's a housing association. That is a grouping of people who, uh, like it or not, are gathered together around where they live. They're an association based on their, their community, their neighborhood. Uh, some of you may be a part of trade associations, where there's a, an organization of people who come together, who network, who help one another, who maybe share uh, various uh, counsel with one another or research with one another. And that association is around that vocation, that trade. We are, as a church, a faith community, which means by definition we have come together around what we believe. And so for the last year, we have on occasion 
taken time to reflect on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Pat finished that series for us through the Creed so well last week on the forgiveness of sins. And we've done that so that we might become clearer on the central truths of the Christian faith that we uh, unite around. Well, as I, I said, in one sense, that series uh, wrapped up last, last week as we worked through the creed. This is the most important stuff for Christians to be clear on and rooted in. But today I want to take an opportunity before we dive back into to Luke to, you might say, locate our church, locate this particular association of people within that broader tradition. Uh, I want to answer the question, if the Apostles' Creed is what all Christians believe, what is it that we believe at Covenant Life? Every church has some distinctives. And so you might think of it this way, if the Apostles' Creed is the highway, what's our church's lane? Uh, I do this, to be honest, with a little fear and trepidation uh, because my perspective is that most churches have a tendency to emphasize their distinctives over what they hold in common. And I think perhaps at times that's been true of us, and I think that's unfortunate. Uh, what is most important about us is what we hold in common with all true believers of Jesus. We can be wrong about our distinctives. We cannot be wrong about our foundations. Uh, if we're wrong about our distinctives, we've been on the right highway in the wrong lane. If we're wrong about the creed, we're off the road altogether. And so uh, there's intentionality in us considering the creed much more at length and much more in depth over the course of the past year. But... We can also err on the other side. Uh, it's a lesser danger, but it's a danger nonetheless. Um, that is that we can be clear, perhaps, on what all Christians believe, but be unclear on the more precise convictions that shape our particular life together as a church. Here's another illustration. You could think of churches like families. Uh, if you know your family's distinctives, uh, but you don't appreciate what you have in common with other families in your community. Well, then uh, your family will end up being like the Hatfields or the McCoys, right? Uh, uh, you'll know each other really well. You'll be very close. You'll be very tight. You'll work hard together, but you'll be skeptical and antagonistic about the others. That's what we've been pushing against with the Creed series. But on the other hand, if you know and appreciate what you share in common with other families, or in our case, other churches, but you don't know the distinctives of your own church, you might have struggles that are a bit more like a child growing up in an orphanage, where you may have an appreciation for family, but struggle to have clarity about your own identity and sort of where you belong. And it's actually confidence in that identity that frees us to function with other families uh, with more freedom, with more clarity. Uh, your kids won't have an identity crisis every time they go to a sleepover if they're confident in who they are at home. So it is with churches. Bear with me. Now, 
on the highway of historic, orthodox, Protestant Christian faith. I'm going to try to answer the question today and over a couple of sermons over the course of the next year. What convictional lane is covenant life driving in? And over that time, I'll, I'll highlight at least three convictional distinctives that I think mark out the lane that we and, and many other churches are driving in. That is the centrality of the gospel, the sovereignty of God, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We'll unpack those together uh, periodically over the course of the year. But today, we'll consider the first distinctive, the centrality of the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning is first expound the gospel itself, then consider how we respond to the gospel, and then we'll consider what it means for that gospel to be central. So first up, what, what is the gospel? Now, you might be thinking, Kev, we're pretty familiar with that one. And I hope you are, you should be. And yet, um, it is so important for us to periodically go back to the basis and shore up the foundations of what we believe. And so to that end, I want to explore the story of the gospel with you. And there's a number of ways you can sort of get to that central truth. You could think of the gospel like a diamond that has many facets. You can get to the same substance and reality, maybe through different vantage points. And the way I want to come at it this morning is by considering the gospel as God's story of redemption. That is the, the, the storyline that really flows throughout all of Scripture. Because beginning from the first page of Genesis and continuing on through the final page of Revelation, there's a glorious story that unfolds. And it's a story that I think can be summarized in three main chapters, creation, fall, and redemption. And so as we review that biblical storyline, we'll get a better understanding of of how the church and how our individual lives fall within God's story. The first chapter, again, is the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the universe. And he created it out of nothing. And it demonstrates repeatedly the power of his word. Maybe some of you have started a Bible reading plan this year and you've been in the book of Genesis for the first time in a while. And you should have noticed some patterns in your reading. Over and over again in the story of creation, there's a rhythm of God speaking and there is. God said, let there be and there was. From the very outset of the story, God is being established as the main character. And he's demonstrating the power of his word. And after creating all of the created order apart from mankind, he does something unique when he creates people. He's been creating things according to their kinds. Animals according to their kinds. Swimming things according to their kinds. Plants and trees according to their kinds. But then all of a sudden, God says, let us make something now in our image. 
God makes something according to his kind when he creates people. He creates man and woman as the crown of his creation. This shows us that God has authority as our creator, that we are to be submitted to him as the one uh, through whom we have our being in the first place. It also shows that he has creation over all else that he's made. That he can intervene in it and adjust it and interrupt it and make it and guide it according to his plans and purposes. When you have a, a good, loving, creator God, miracles are not that hard a pill to swallow. But he not only has this incredible uh, authority, this also demonstrates his incredible glory. We sung a, a bit of this this morning. The psalmist, as he praises God in Psalm 19, he praises him for the sky above that, that speaks of his handiwork. When the psalmist looks out over creation, he says, God, you are speaking to me through what you've made. And what you made says things like you exist and you are eternal and you are glorious. So this thing that God's made demonstrates his authority, it demonstrates his, his glory, and it was created without sin. His people were placed in the garden in perfect relationship with him, where God gives them a mission to, to subdue the earth and multiply within it, to, uh, to keep it. And he promises to bless them and to provide for them everything good that they would need. But I'm sure, as you well know, we get hardly three chapters into that story when it takes a tragic turn. We go back into that garden scene. You know, the serpent enters into that glorious creation and it begins to question God's word. What does he say to Eve? Did God really say? Did he really say? Will that really happen? And as the enemy sows seeds of doubt in the heart of Eve, she begins to wrestle with this and she responds. There's all kinds of interesting things about her Response I won't get into right now, but the bottom line is, as we know, she, she takes the forbidden fruit. God had put his uh, creation, put man and woman in this garden with a thousand yeses and one no. And in this moment, due to the seeds of doubt that had been sown, that they let flourish in their hearts, they transgressed the one law of God. And to be clear, we're not letting Adam off the hook at all. Uh, it says, and Adam, who was there, took and ate. Uh, Adam is watching this whole thing go down with the serpent and his wife and just kind of says, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen here. Uh, in that moment when his wife needed a word of truth, he needed a, she needed a reminder of the faithfulness of God and of the truthfulness of his word, Adam passively stands by and lets her go down this path. 
And he takes then and eats as well. Now as a result, sin takes root in the midst of God's creation. All the universe is then permeated with the curse of sin. It's, it's universal. It is the willful and selfish rejection of God's rule. It begins uh, with doing wrong things and will continue on into failing to do the right things. And it is fundamentally and primarily sin against God. The psalmist in Psalm 51 says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The consequences of that sin are then severe. As a result of it, you and I are, are cut off from relationship with God. He is holy and just and righteous. And as such, it would be wrong for him to simply let sin go. He must set all wrongs right. As a result, we are then the, the just objects of his wrath. Pat fleshed this out so uh, helpfully last week. Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Not just the unrighteousness of the people who make headlines, not just the unrighteousness of, of people that we imagine who commit mass atrocities, the unrighteousness that's resident in each and every one of us. As a result, Ephesians 2 says we are, we're enslaved to sin. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The scripture makes clear then this is not only sort of a personal problem, although it certainly is that, but this is the fundamental reason for all suffering in the world. The whole world is now broken it's now not functioning properly, and there's the experience now of pain and suffering and strife and sickness and death. And not only is there that kind of significant consequence for this life, there's also a great confident, uh, consequence for the life to come. Jesus talks more about the reality of hell than any other speaker or character in the Bible. Certainly, he was crystal clear on the eternal punishment that awaits those who continue to reject God. But praise God, that is not the end of the story. The rest of the Bible tells the story of the next chapter, which is the story of redemption. And the pinnacle of that story is what we've celebrated in recent weeks, the coming of Jesus. 
Jesus enters into that brokenness and sickness and death that is the result of sin that's been resident in each and every human heart. And he not only sort of deals with it afar, but God, in a sense, writes himself into our story. He takes on flesh. He takes on human form. And then bearing all of our affirmities in his own body and enduring all of our own weaknesses and temptations. He lives the life of perfect obedience to God that no one ever has. And then he dies the death that my sin and your sin and each person's sin who's ever lived deserved. And he absorbed the righteous wrath of God for sin in himself, in his body, on the tree. And then he goes into the grave. And on the third day, he raises again by the power of the Holy Spirit into newness of life. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. So that now through faith in him, through believing in Christ's substitutionary life, death, and resurrection, any human being beset by the bondage of sin can be forgiven and set free by trusting in Jesus. Redemption is not off limits to anybody. God himself makes a way for his own wrath to be satisfied so that you could be redeemed and set free. And then the rest of God's word tells the story of what Christ has done in and through his people as they respond to this truth. So let's consider what does it mean for us to respond to God's story? Well, again, I want to point out that God is in the driver's seat. God takes the initiative to make a way for our redemption. He chooses and calls the men and women to himself. And he re regenerates spiritually dead people and makes them alive by the Spirit. Colossians 2 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, that's what God can do. So what do we do? We respond to God's gracious initiative. And the Bible describes our response like two sides of one coin, repentance and faith. And really, that is the drumbeat of the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels. It's really the drumbeat of much of the Gospels as well. It's what Jesus preaches over and over and again, repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Repentance is the gift of God characterized by sorrow for sin and a resolve to follow Jesus, to live differently. Faith is the means by which we receive the benefits of salvation. When we believe in Christ, we receive his forgiveness. We receive adoption as the sons and daughters of God. 
we receive the benefits of Christ's finished work through repenting of sin and putting our faith in Jesus. Now, our response to that gospel truth is not just a a one-time deal. It's not just the portal into the Christian life. It's the way we continue to walk the Christian life. And God has specifically given the church two ways that we continue to remember that message. The first is baptism. Baptism is a rite that symbolizes a believer's union with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. It's a it's something we do not only with our, uh, our, our words and, and through perceiving a message. God has given us something we can see and, and touch that proclaims the gospel to our eyes. And in baptism, we have a picture of not only Christ's death and burial and resurrection, but our own death, burial, and resurrection with him through union with him by faith. That we have died to our old selves and we are now risen to walk in newness of life. Then we continue to remember and continue to celebrate this message through the Lord's Supper. And again, this is a picture of the gospel. That's not only something that we hear and respond to, which is what much of the Christian life and Christian message is. It's something we can not only see we can, we can touch it and we can, we can taste it. And Jesus has ordained this sacrament that declares to the senses of his people over and over and over again throughout the course of their lives that the gospel is true, that it's real, that he is at work in the hearts and lives of his people. We not only have these these remembrances through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We also have the command to go and tell and watch and wait. It's the other way we respond to the gospel. We go and tell. We, we proclaim the truth of this message to those who don't yet know it, uh, to those who haven't yet heard it. So that others who were in bondage to sin and in rebellion against God might experience the forgiveness and freedom that you and I have experienced through the gospel. We not only go and tell, we watch and wait. Over and over again, God calls his people in the New Testament to anticipate him coming a day again. That there will come a day when the curse that has been broken in part as individual believers are set free from their bondage of sin, will one day be experienced in full. When sin will be no more, when suffering will be no more. And that's the hope that every Christian now hangs their hat on. Revelation 21 gives it to us. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, as individual Christians and as a church, we are caught up in that story, in the majestic unfolding story of God's grace. And the heart of that story is Jesus. And so he ought to forever be the substance of our proclamation, the source of our motivation in the Christian life, and the fuel for our adoration. Now, if that's the message of the gospel and our response to the gospel, what does it mean when I say things like, the centrality of the gospel. What does it mean for the gospel to be central in our lives and in the church? Well, to help surface the answer to that question, I think it's helpful to consider what it looks like when the gospel is not central. I want to read... um, something to you from a classic book called The Cross and Christian Ministry by D.A. Carson that I think gets at one of the two predominant ways the gospel tends to be pressed to the margins uh, in our day, in our own lives, and in the life of churches. He says, this lesson, that is the centrality of the gospel, is especially important when so many Christians today identify themselves with some single issue other than the cross, other than the gospel. It is not that they deny the gospel. If pressed, they will emphatically endorse it. But their point of self-identification, the focus of their minds and hearts, what occupies their interest and energy is something else. A style of worship, the abortion issue, homeschooling, the gift of prophecy, pop sociology, a certain brand of counseling, or whatever. Of course, all of those issues have their own importance. Doubtless, we need some Christians working on them full time. But even those who are so engaged must do so as an extension of the gospel as an extension of the message of the cross. They must take special pains to avoid giving any impression that being really spiritual or really insightful or really wise turns on an appropriate response to their issue. He says, I've heard a certain leader assess his own movement in this way. One movement, or one generation cherished the gospel and believed that the entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political commitments. The next generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. The present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. It no longer lies at the heart of the belief system of some who call themselves Christians. One generation believes the gospel and lives in light of it, he says. One generation assumes it and talks a lot about something else. 
And the third one abandons it altogether. Friends, by my count, give or take, we are somewhere around the third generation of this church. Oh, Lord, may it never be true that we either deny or assume the gospel. That's one way it happens, is when it functions secondarily. It functions on the margins because some other, perhaps very good thing, has taken up the center. I think the other predominant way that the gospel can get marginalized in the life of a Christian or in the life of a church is through putting ourselves at the center by more or less making our own improvement what Christian life is all about. Now, you might think, man, who does that? Well, I actually think that's alive and well in our day and it's a temptation in all of our hearts if we're not careful. Contra the good news of earthly prosperity or the good news of self-improvement or the good news of positive experiences, the good news of of personal self-actualization. It's not uncommon for pastors at times to say things in sermons like, the best thing you can do to improve your life is have a relationship with Jesus. Now think about that sentence with me for a moment. That might be true depending on what you mean by improve. (laughs) Uh, Improve is, is carrying a lot of weight in that sentence. No doubt an internal confidence about your peace with God should improve your life if you're anxious. Uh, A strong Christian work ethic very well may get you kudos in the job. But if you define the good life by the world's standards of wealth and approval, a relationship with Jesus will often make that worse, not better. You'll make money and you'll start giving it away because the gospel makes us generous. Uh, You'll stop indulging in certain things with certain people because the gospel empowers us to be more and more like Jesus, and that might cost you some relationships. You'll develop convictions about the way God designed the lives of his people to be lived, and you'll start aligning yourself with his design, and that will bring you inner peace, but it may cost you your reputation in some places. Now, how is all that relevant to this bigger point about the gospel? It's this, friends. We don't need improvement. We need conversion. Uh, We don't need steps. We need new birth. If I offer you self-improvement via a relationship with Jesus, however sincere and truthful my presentation of the gospel is, I have made Jesus the means to some other end. I've invited you to leverage the cross so you can get what you want. The problem with that is it puts you at the center of your universe, which is what got you in the mess of sin you and I were in in the first place. You don't need the gospel to achieve your goals. You and I need the gospel because without it, we are at enmity with God. 
You and I need the gospel because without it, you and I deserve the wrath of God. You and I need the gospel because Jesus is worthy. If we hold ourselves and our improvement at the center of it all and leverage Jesus to get what we want, not only are we putting ourselves at the center rather than him, but then the second you and I feel like Jesus isn't giving us the stuff we think we want, we'll bail. We'll get whatever else might improve our lives the next go-round. It's a very shaky foundation. The truth is that this gospel is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the center of it, meaning believing this message is not only the way we get into Christian life, it It's the hallway of the Christian life. It shapes and guides and leads the way we live it, and it fuels it. So how do we we keep it central here? I could go on and on and on about this. But in the life and ministry of the church, let's say I think in a couple of weeks, uh, Mick and Steve are going to get up here and talk about a men's breakfast coming up. Well, we could easily have a men's breakfast and say, guys, Uh, In case you weren't aware, you stink. You're doing a terrible job as dads and husbands, and you're really lame at work. Do better. Now, here are five tips to being a better dad. Eight tips to being a fantastic husband. Four tips for achieving more at work. And we will have had nothing to do with the gospel. When Paul addresses husbands in the book of Ephesians, what does he say? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. In other words, husbands, consider the ways that Jesus has loved you. Consider his sacrifice for you in love. And now as your heart is full of that reality, think about your calling as a husband. Think about what it means for the gospel to fill your heart with genuine affection for God and affection for his people and then shape you as a husband who lays down his life for his wife. He does the same thing with giving in 1 Corinthians. When he wants the Corinthians to give, he doesn't say, guys, look, y'all are loaded. It's Corinth. Y'all got a lot of money. There's a lot of entrepreneurs there. You need to be giving it so I can get after it out here on my mission. No, he says, Corinthians, remember he who, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. In other words, remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus forsook eternal glory, didn't consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped so that he could escape suffering and difficulty. No, he came and walked in our shoes. He became poor so that we might become spiritually rich. Now think about all you've been given. Could you outgive that? I don't think so. <laughs> so now, in light of all that God's done to enrich you spiritually, Corinthians, now go and use your resources for the sake of his kingdom and the expanse of his gospel. God's word motivates us to live the Christian life by calling us to meditate on the gospel so that it fuels our Christian lives and it shapes it. Friends, that's what our church must be committed to. Otherwise, we will be people who tip our hats to this central message and get busy doing something else. And it may not be so. 
Jesus doesn't give us that option. And it wouldn't be as good an option anyway. This is far, far better. So friends, would you pray with me and work with me, one, that the gospel would continue and grow as functioning centrally in the life of this church? But would you also consider how might the gospel function more centrally in your own heart? Is there some ways you're aware you need to grow, some things you know you need to repent of, some things you know you want to improve in, and what you're telling yourself is just some Christian version of do better. And it's not working out so well. It's day seven and the resolutions are toast. Well, there's a reason for that. (laughs) In and of ourselves, we are not sufficient to do this thing. But his grace is sufficient. The grace of God can empower you to walk the Christian life. You don't have to spend the rest of your Christian life feeling beat up and defeated at how bad you're doing. (laughs) You can live it empowered by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to live as Christ has freed you to live. That starts with remembering the gospel. You might memorize a short passage of scripture that expounds the gospel, like Romans 3, 19 and following. You might memorize a small chunk of Ephesians 1 or 2 or a portion of 1 Peter that just helps you remember the truth of the gospel for you. You might wake up in the morning and and proclaim that truth to yourself. You might take a minute to pray, what are the things that I'm, man, I'm just, I feel like I'm hitting a wall in my growth in this particular area of my Christian life, a relationship that feels fractured, uh, a, a sin I just find myself giving into over and over again, and I feel stuck in this pattern. There's a lot I could say about what you might do in a situation like that, but one thing will certainly include, and it will certainly start with, a deep reflection on the truth of what Christ has done for you in the gospel. And then a reflection on how does that empower you? How does that fuel you? How does it shape the way you respond to those circumstances?